Damn, five bedrooms, huh? This is like the Salt Lake City equivalent of your house. Got a big view out the back. Nice. So if we get Sundance Film Festival again this year, you should bring a lady and come out because we got lots of room. For sure. I'm down. Yeah, because I barely saw Utah when I was out there. I mean, we went to the game and shit, but it was like mostly just in and out radio shit. I didn't really get to like see it, see it. You guys are listed in like the top 10 most beautiful states in the United States. Yeah, it's a nice place. I didn't know that. I also didn't know Montana was like top three. Dude, have you ever been to Montana? No. It is beautiful. I had no idea. I was shocked. It's still like truly wild. I think the biggest city in Montana is like 250,000 people. Wow. It's small. Yeah, I just remember Montana being the easiest state to do when you had to fill out the state things when you're in school. I always knew where Montana was. So easy. The big ass one up and to the left. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I know of all like the famous places that are out there. I just never thought of it as like, I always thought of it as the place where like, there's no speed limit. You can go as fast as you want. What up, Zoe? What up? What up? I got to ask him what that trophy is of, of the guy lifting weights behind. Iron Bowl? I'm going to make a guess that those are unrelated, those two things. Oh, the belts around the guy? Yeah. Gotcha. Because that's a Buffalo Bills belt. The Iron Bills. Got to ask him about that. Maybe he was the biggest lifter on Buffalo. Oh, look at that Park City shirt, man. I love that. Yeah. I got to rip my wife from time to time. <laughs> That's what's up. We'll start right there. Welcome on into the program. Hey, I was thinking instead of two Z's and an OC, shouldn't we just take the uh out of there and make it two Z's and OC? I think I, it flows you're, better. You're the only one who ever says it. So <laughs> however you say it works for <laughs> well, us. I'm getting a logo made, man. It's got to have a show name. What are you changing it to? Instead of two Z's and an OC, just two Z's and OC taking the uh out of there so it flows a little easier oh okay man whatever you feel like you need to contribute since me and oc hold down all the talent over here whatever you need to do <laughs> part of it man, go ahead bro you guys <laughs> might have had on the field talent i got the off the field hey, talent son you just got a voice i mean that doesn't mean you talented man you've been hey. gifted but you now how you cultivating it man that's all you need i got personality too baby and i got knowledge you know what i'm saying i'm the triple threat off the field y'all the ones with all the awards and the million dollar bout fights in new york that happened a long time ago now, so I got to find something else to contribute to society. <laughs> all right, well, we'll start there. Lorenzo is repping Park City, Utah. As much as I bring up first team all league, OC brings up that he's from Salt Lake. So OC got all juice because he's got the Park City, Utah shirt on because Zoe's wife is from Utah, so he's repping his better half. We were talking about your trophy in the background, Zoe, as we do numerous times on this show, but you've got an Iron Bills, what is that, seven championship belt and then is that around another trophy of a guy doing some weightlifting explain those two things back there yeah they actually are one of the same award so the belt was there awarded to the guy that won that weekly challenge and so with the bills they had like to make off season more fun and really to, to mentally get us engaged because most guys just show up do they work and get out they make a competition and so they'll have teams and you would do things like tug of war rope hang or bar hang, a relay race, all types of different activities to make it competitive to get more out of the guys that were there. And so part of that, they'll give out a team award and an individual award. My team, my first year, we won the overall award. In the, in the first two years I was there, I always come in like second or third because I missed a couple of days where I couldn't win the overall award. So this year I made it a point to win the overall award. So that's what both of those are. The, the best lifter I have most points ever set for the Bills organization at 37. 
And so that's what Damn. those two things are. And so uh, I'm the people's champ and, and all that <laughs> stuff, you know? That's what's up. Do you know who won it this year? Yeah, Quentin Spain won it, but that was just because I wasn't there. They, they did a virtual <laughs> thing. If I was a part of it, I would have killed it again this year. Oh, other people won it just because I decided not to win it. That's really what it came down to. It's like the Rockets winning the finals when Michael Jordan leaves. Cool. <laughs> That's what it is. Fair enough. OC, do you have any crazy workout feat that you accomplished? Uh, no, man. Uh, that's <laughs> People in the MMA world, whatever. You don't I, do crazy heavy lifting for that, huh? No, I mean, physical strength is not nearly as important. And even like explosive yeah. strength in the way that it is in football is not the same kind of importance. But when you come to the endurance thing and like the hardcore workout thing, it's never dudes in my weight class that you're going to be impressed by what they're able to do. Yeah, there's probably yeah. some guys at 205 and heavyweight that are pretty strong, but those little guys like the 145ers, 155ers, they can go forever without getting tired. <laughs> yeah. you- See, but they've been cheating. When I used to work out, the guys that are shorter have smaller arms. So when they're bench pressing, they have so much less far to go than I do when I have to do my big ass arms and go all the way out. If you have little Popeye arms, of course you can bang out a bunch of reps. That was never fair. I never liked that. No, it's fine. I trained with a dude for a good majority of my career who fought at 145 pounds, okay? So his walk around weight, and my walk-around weight are about 90 pounds apart. Yeah. I'm 90 pounds heavier than this dude and, like, seven inches taller than this dude. He is stronger than me in every way. In the weight room, stronger than me. Like, on a wrestling mat, stronger than me. So I'm not that guy who's going to impress you with any sort of physical feats like Zoe. But, like, yeah. there are dudes in the fight world that you would be shocked with how strong they are, especially that kind of pound-for-pound functional strength type stuff. Right. And that's why I surprised myself on as I lost the weight. I wanted to be just as strong as the cats that were, you know, 315, 330, and then be able to run with the DBs to give me that ultimate advantage. Yeah, because you were doing all that crazy weight fluctuation as you changed positions. Most impressive thing I did, I ran a mile in five minutes and 30 seconds twice. What's the fastest mile you ever ran, Zo? I couldn't tell you. I didn't run miles. We run sprints. It's different. Uh, OC? Five minutes and 29 seconds. <laughs> you're, you're, so, you're so full of shit. <laughs> Seriously, what's the, what's the fastest mile you've done? What a strange coincidence. No, I think my <laughs> fastest mile was probably 6'10 or something like that. Yeah, I blacked out both times that I did it. I don't know how I did it. Hey, real quick before we start, Zoe, is the settings on your Skype, is it set to the microphone that you're using? Uh, I just want to make sure you're not using the internal. Just click on the more on the bottom right. And then go to audio and video settings. He's trying to tell me, like, I don't know what I'm doing, man. I don't need you to walk me through this, man. I'm educated, dude. I know you see me and don't think that. Oh, no. Come on, man. I went to St. Mary's and Cal with you. I know you're educated. Yeah. Hey. Oh. Come on, man. can't believe Zachariah profiling that way. I don't I, That makes oh, sense. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Is that work? That better for you? Yeah, that sounds better. That sounds better. All right, okay. you ready? All right, let's do this. All right, gentlemen. So I sent over a list of topics. And the first one that I started with, because I'm interested in it in terms of how it works, and I'm wondering more from Zoe playing in the NFL how it works. But Alvin Kamara, obviously getting completely underpaid at, what is it, $2.2 million, I think, the last year of his rookie deal, totally yeah. outperforming his contract. And he's holding out because he wants to get more money, and of course he should get more money. And I'm just wondering, if you're the team, obviously you've seen situations like Le'Veon Bell where he just sat out the whole damn season. And so if 
if you're a team, you might be worried about that because he's such a key part to their offense. But how does that work with, in terms of, I'm sure all the other players are supporting him and wanting him to get as much money as possible, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what I will say. I mean, when you're in that locker room and you've been around for as long as you have or as Kamara has and he's proven his worth as a teammate, you're like, man, you need to get yours because obviously the NFL is, the average is only three years. Obviously, he surpassed that and is a very dynamic player, but he's at the point of his career, especially as a running back, that he needs to get paid and deserves it. The issue, from a, obviously, from a team perspective, I don't know. You know, obviously, COVID is probably significantly impacted the cap as far as it dropping, especially next year. I think this year is like like at 195 or something like that. Next year, the floor may be 175. It can't go below that. And so organization, they don't know how much money they're going to have. And so do they want to play a running back, which traditionally doesn't make that big of an impact as far as wins and losses. But in my mind, I'm looking, that's Kamara, man. He's going to open up everything. He makes Drew better. He makes the passing game better. He can go out and catch passes, screen game. He can run the rock. He's done everything you asked him to do. And so he needs to be rewarded, especially while he's in his prime. And so I know the guys are supporting him. I just don't know if it's going to get done because of the economic stress. Now, if they have another guy, that's going to be his worst, I guess, adversary as far as not getting it done by holding out. If there's a young guy that they see that can least probably get in there because at running back, I wouldn't say that you can put anybody back there and they do well. But if they have somebody that's closer, it's going to give them some of the production. Some GMs, some teams are like, OK, well, you just hold out. You do you and we, football is going to keep moving on. It's so tough for running backs. I mean, the best thing that could happen for running backs is in the next collective bargaining agreement, and this probably will not happen, but they start to delineate between positions when your rookie deal can be up and when you can try and cash in again and then you don't have to force a holdout, right? Like your rookie contract as a running back, knowing the shelf life of that position might be a little bit shorter or something like that. You're talking about a guy who changes an offense exactly how you'd want a running back to. There's not really much more that Alvin Kamara could do to maximize his value to a team, but we have begun to devalue running backs in this sort of second contract phase in the NFL because the big names that held out and got paid a lot of money in the past, not a lot of them ended up being worth that money. And then you have a situation like with Pittsburgh where it's, I want more money, I want more money, and you give the younger guy, the backup, the opportunity to take your reps, to take your rollover, and he does almost as good, just like you were talking about, Zoe. So, yeah, it's very, very difficult to be even a really excellent young running back in the league because you might be worth a lot more than you're getting paid, but you're never going to get paid as much as you want to because of the system that the NFL has set up with, I guess, just that position group being expendable. Yeah, and, I, and you know what? I'll tell you what else Kamara's probably looking at. He's probably looking at Christian McCaffrey, who just got broke off, and he's looking at himself mm-hmm. like, man, I do the same thing. I'm just <laughs> yep. And for yeah. me, I played against both of them, and they both are right there neck and neck as far as who's more scarier as far as going against. And so that's why Ingram is no longer with the Saints. And so for me, I don't know what the holdup is. They probably, again, make an excuse about COVID and how that's impacted their cap, and they really don't know what's going on, and they got to pay X, Y, Z. Drew is here. All this other stuff that probably, you know, GMs like to kind of skate around, but Kamara's looking like, hey, man, this dude got paid. I'm in the same class as him. Y'all need to pay me too. Yeah, it's just crazy because growing up, for me, it was like, 
Barry Sanders, Emmitt Smith, Thurman Thomas. Like the running back position was held in such a high regard. And now it's like, oh, they're interchangeable. If, you know, if he's not here, we can put somebody else in there. And you're constantly seeing even the Niners backfield. You know, they went to the Super Bowl last year. They're like, oh, yeah, keep it moving. We can trade him. It's like it's so much more of a plug and play type of situation. And you look at, you know, I mentioned Le'Veon Bell. He sits out that whole year for Pittsburgh, gets his free agency. The Jets sign him, and he's already having issues in camp. You think the Jets would take back that signing if they could? So it's very rare. I mean, I think McCaffrey's probably going to live up to the contract, but it's very rare where running backs actually earn the top dollar that they end up getting. But I think Kamara, like you said, Kamara and McCaffrey might be two exceptions to the rule. The key with guys like that is that in an increasingly pass-dominated game of NFL football and football in general, those are guys who are equally valuable in a passing scheme as they are when you put them behind an offensive line. So anyone who is entering the NFL now moving forward and wants to be those kind of guys, you have to be the five-tool running back. You can't be a between-the-tackles guy. You can't be a just-bounce-it-outside kind of guy. You have to be able to catch the ball. you got to be able to line up in the slot. You have to be a receiver who can take the punishment of going up against guys like Zoe when it's time to get third and short. I think ultimately it's tough in rookie contracts, I would think. If you've outplayed your contract the way that he has, I think once you get to the point where it's the last year of the rookie contract, that's when it's time to be like, okay, let's get you paid. Because the last year has got to be the one that hurts the most. I mean, a lot of it is, okay, you got to prove it, you got to prove it. But now he's sitting around like, come on, man, the last year of my rookie contract and I'm making $2 million, which like you said, he's looking over at McCaffrey going, he got paid. When did McCaffrey, when did they rip up his rookie contract? I know he didn't finish his, right? Yeah, he I got think paid before last season, I think. Yeah, so I think he had two years left on his when they paid him. So, yeah, but I mean, also if you're the Saints, you're like, look, why would I pay you more than I have to, you know? I mean, unless he's willing to sit out the whole year. Yeah, that, and then if they're willing to lose him in free agency, I mean, that's the, also the big scare. I mean, I think GMs, they try to play that game and try to make you fearful of having to sit out. And so right now, it's just a stare-down contest. And I think guys that kind of stick to their guns because, you know, I can say that they may have somebody that's serviceable, but I know, I can almost guarantee there's nobody on their roster that's going to be as dynamic as Kamara, what he brings and what he's able to do on first, second, and third down. So right now, it's just a game of chicken. Who's going to give out first? And I think you get to a certain point, especially if Drew says something. I don't know if Drew would ever do this, but he's like, man, I need my guy back here to really open things up because we're trying to win, right? If he can get Drew to probably say something, he'll definitely get the money that he deserves. That's always the question, right? Who's the next guy? In this case for the Saints, it's Latavius Murray, who they pay a decent amount. He makes, what, $3 million a year, which is yeah. – that's what running back <laughs> – For a running back, he's getting paid. <laughs> and Latavius is a good back. You know, I played with Latavius in Oakland, and he was a, a good, solid back, but he's not he's as dynamic no as Kamari is and what he yeah. brings to the table. He's not as versatile. He's good, but it's just different. And maybe they're willing to lean on Latavius because he's put up big numbers in his league. I thought he was really good when he was with the Raiders, when he went to Minnesota. And so he's a guy that can give you something. But when it gets to the pass game, the screen game, some of the other things that Kamara brings and be able to turn something that looks into nothing into a 20-yard gain or a touchdown, I think Kamara is just on a, another level. So before we move on to something else, let me ask you about the face of the franchise dynamic when it comes to situations like this, right? Because – Drew Brees, he's going to be moving on sooner than later. And when he does, similar to what we saw with Carolina souring on Cam Newton, they need to have somebody there who's the face of the franchise. And thankfully for them, their face of the franchise happens to be 
a really extremely talented, likable guy who should have won a Heisman Trophy like Christian McCaffrey, I think that's part of why he got paid the way he did because they know he's stepping into that role as the dude everyone in the media wants to talk to, the guy who's all the posters and stuff like that. Does that matter for Alvin Kamara? Because who else is it going to be? If Drew Brees decided um, I'm retiring after the 2020 season, isn't Kamara the guy? You would think so. You would hope so. But we can't forget that Jameis Winston is sitting right behind Drew right now, too. And so normally the quarterback gets that type of notoriety unless, you know, you're just an elite player. Because even when Christian was there, Cam was still the face of the franchise. But now Cam is gone. Luke is gone. It's kind of falling to Christian. And so, I, you know, for me, if Drew decides to retire and they really love what Jameis Winston has done, it would naturally transition to him, even though Kamara's been there longer, has done more for that organization. He just happens to play the wrong position. And so that's why I say that because of just the way the league has treated running backs, that it wouldn't naturally just go to him first. The same thing with Christian. If those other couple of guys weren't there, he wouldn't be the face like he is now. All right, gentlemen, since the last time we spoke, the NBA went on strike. It started with the Milwaukee Bucks, and then it started trickling down to other teams, which led to other leagues. The WNBA joined in on it. Major League Baseball joined in on it. There wasn't really a uniform Major League, sort of just like random teams did it in some games. They sort of protested, and MLS did it. Did it reach the NHL? I think it might have reached even the NHL. No, I don't. Did it? Did it? Did it? Okay. Did it, the, I think, the second day on Thursday. Okay. So side to protest yeah for the nba it lasted a couple of days everybody's back to playing now and basically the gist that i got from you know chris paul obviously being the leader for the players and all those guys meeting down there in the bubble it's really easy for them to meet because they're all in the bubble it's not like they're all in different cities like it normally would be so they're all able to meet in an area and actually talk about it and i thought honestly i think it was handled perfectly i don't think that they should have shut the whole season down I don't think that they shouldn't have protested at all, but there was something about it. Cause I remember us talking last week when I was bringing up the quotes from the Toronto guard mentioned something about it. Yeah. 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 Fred Van Vliet. Yeah. 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 Van Vliet. And I was saying how much I loved his quotes about like, well, what are we actually going to, cause it kind of felt like it started off, right? This whole movement before the season even started, before they got to the bubble, there was all this stuff going on. Then they were worried about how that was going to transition down to the bubble. They didn't want to ignore it. So they did all this stuff with the jerseys and all. And, and then it kind of felt like it got to the point where it was just people were numb to it. It wasn't really having an effect. And this kind of brought it back. Obviously, another shooting led to it. But this kind of brought stuff back to the front. And then they got everybody's awareness. They did it in all these different sports. Even the girl in tennis yeah. uh, shut down a day for tennis. And she did it because she's like, look, I don't know that much of the tennis world, the fans of tennis have any idea what's going on. So it brought some awareness to that. And then they came back and they started playing it again. And then they came up with a plan. They're doing these different things. Anyways, I thought it was handled perfectly. What about you? Yeah, I thought overall it was done well. I think when you had asked me about the comments last week by Van Fleet, I wanted to make sure that the goal and the vision was communicated because a lot of times you can say you want to do something. And this was, I think, even before the shooting had happened. What's the purpose of what you're trying to do? I think initially we're trying to get like the Minnesota's owner to use his relationships with people there in the state to create some change, which I thought was great. I don't know if that was ever communicated nationally, but for me, I think a lot of people felt initially it was like an emotional reaction to something, especially with all the guys being down in the bubble and feeling hopeless in a sense because they could not actually go out and do something about it and be a part of the protest as we saw so many of the players do initially during COVID when the social unrest happened, like you had a guy like Jalen Brown 
obviously a cow bear, very socially aware, out there protesting with the people. And you saw that all the way around. And so now you're in this bubble and there's nothing that you can actually do to be with the community, to actually have your voice heard outside of playing a game. And obviously, like you said, talking about Black Lives Matter, having the stuff on your jersey, but that had become almost numb in a sense. And so I think initially it was just, hey, we got to do something. We got to do something right now. Hey, we can't be playing basketball. We need to get out here and allow our voices to be heard. And that's why he was even thinking about even suspending the season because that's just how passionate they were. And I think in a lot of ways, hopeless they felt because they could not be in the community, not being around their families, all these things kind of bubbling up. And it's like, man, basketball is not important right now based on what's going on in the world. I think they got to a great resolution as far as continuing to move forward and some of the things that they want, because I think they have a much bigger platform of keeping it at least in the eyes of society because they are using their platform. And I think it would have been not as good a decision to stop completely because you lose that platform that we as athletes have. And so I thought it was overall a great display of unity, especially when you think about the NBA, them making a decision to do it against protests, two games. And then you see the ripple effect that has when you have unity as far as how that impacted all the other sports, which I thought was huge. Even in NHL, which is traditionally, <laughs> if you ask people, is it a racist sport? They'll say yes. For them to even decide to protest because of what the NBA players did, I mean, this shows you the impact you have as a leader, especially in the sports world, which you have on other people around you. So I thought overall it was just great because of the impact they showed when they were together and the impact they had on other people to help encourage people and give them the courage to use their platform as well in maybe some environments where it's not as welcome. For me, it was successful and important for two main reasons. The first one is because it's hard for folks who are not directly affected by some of these injustices that have been going on for such a long time. It's hard for, for them, and I'll put myself in this category at times, and I hope I'm saying this the right way so I don't sound like someone who isn't sympathetic to the cause, but I, I'm just trying to illustrate that I know that I don't have to go through these struggles. So it's hard to really fully appreciate what people go through, what it's like to be a young black man who obviously a good majority of the NBA is, and have had these experiences where you get pulled over for no reason and they ask you why are you driving such a nice car when you earn that nice car and all that kind of thing. But if you're from a large part of middle America, if you're from a place where I'm from, where there's just not a lot of African-Americans in the community, you don't really get a firsthand experience with this. And so when you're seeing protests and you're seeing things that make perfect sense and are just kind of requisite to be like a member of the Bay Area community. Like if you're living in Topeka, Kansas, you might not feel the same way, right? Uh -huh. So a lot of the question you get from white folks who don't fully understand is, what can we do? What do they want? Because awareness is a thing that matters, but awareness by itself doesn't really do anything. Right. And what this protest did is it got a lot of quick awareness from people all over who wanted to watch their NBA games, right? But then also very quickly, it was what we want is for the influence we have to create substantive and immediate change that will help in the long-term changes we're looking for. And the result we got there, the compromise we got there from the NBA and ownership groups and everyone else was, let's open up our arenas and some of our other owner businesses to be voting places. Let's encourage voting because long-term that's the system that is supposed to work for all this in our country. The protests are great for drawing awareness, but if you want this to change over the next 5, 10, 20 years, you have to have the right people in leadership in your community 
and sitting in the White House and all that kind of stuff. So they said, let's turn all these NBA arenas into voting polling places. And the players thought that was a good idea. And the other reason I thought it was very important is because NBA owners are incredibly powerful. And so you mentioned that kind of the initial movement here was to get some of those very wealthy people to use some of their influence in their communities to make sure that police were doing their jobs right and city councils were doing their jobs right and all that stuff. A lot of owners were like, look, we've said yes to pretty much everything the players have asked for. They've asked a lot and we've given them a lot. And that's a reasonable reaction to have because they said yes to the names on the jerseys and they said yes to expending extra money to make sure that the NBA had a safe environment and a bubble and all that stuff. But the important takeaway for me here is that there was still more that could be done. And at the end of the day, that's what it's going to take. And those owners did the right thing and they said, yes, I will let my arena be a polling place. In Utah here, the jazz ownership has a bunch of movie theaters. So a bunch of their movie theaters are going to be polling places. So they committed more of their resources. When we're talking about folks who have a lot, it should be expected that they give a lot back. And those were the two biggest takeaways for me. I think the only follow-up I have with what I would love ownership to do, because most ownerships I think probably would, and I may be off on this basis, but at least economically probably attach themselves to the Republican Party in some sort of way, which is fine. But I think with that, sometimes there's a little bit of hesitation of trying to create change or holding leadership accountable because maybe obviously there's a relationship there. What I would like to see is owners using their political capital to create real legislative change in our communities as well. Yes, giving all this stuff, giving space, donating money or giving money to certain causes, all that stuff helps. But we all know People react a lot differently when I have one of my friends or peers or somebody in my fear hey, coming and say, hey, we need to get this thing changed. This is my perspective. These are the people that I've worked with at work. Yes, I, I'm the owner of the team, but I know this player. I know his family. And really exercising that value and what they bring, I think, is, is huge as far as us getting even more movement. Because they came up with a couple of initiatives that was just players and coaches. It would have been good if ownership get involved in that as well and use their relationships in their platforms beyond money, because we can all throw money at stuff, but give up your time and your energy and your perspective and your influence, because that's really where you get change at. Because, again, if I know you and I say something to you, you're going to respond a lot differently than if I don't know you and I say the same exact thing to you. And so I think that's where people can leverage your social capital and to even expedite change even quicker. Yeah, and that's where, you know, there was articles and reports that Michael Jordan played a big role being the only black owner. He played a big role in kind of merging the gap between the players and the owners. And I just, there was a couple things to it. One, LeBron said that he's never comfortable not having a plan. So when they first sort of just shut it down, he was like, okay, that's fine, but what's the plan? And that's what they sort of developed over those couple of days. And then the other part that stuck out to me was, Why did it take them having to not play games to wake the owners up? Now, I know what the answer is. The answer is money. The owners were probably crapping their pants thinking, oh, are they going to shut all the playoffs down and we're going to lose all this money? But it shouldn't have taken that for them to be able to come together and figure something out. Yeah, and I don't even think it had anything to do necessarily with the owners because I think the NBA owners probably do the best as far as allowing the players to express themselves during the game while they're at work. I think a lot of the initial protest and the refusing of wanting to play games was because of 
anger, disappointment, and sadness what had just happened to Mr. Blake. And so in seeing that and then seeing the next night of the protester, the young man. The vigilante that was trying to protect the... Right. So, and then you see the differences of how people are treated just that point blank, then you feel like you, you're so upset and angry. Like, I can't even focus on no game. Oh, so the side-by-side is so unbelievable. I just saw it on uh, last night with John Oliver. I don't know if you guys watch him. He's on HBO. He's fantastic. But they showed the split image of, you know, one guy getting shot in the back and another guy carrying a, like, you know, ridiculously large semi-automatic weapon after having just killed two people and walking the other way right by the police, like five feet away from the police. And the difference in in which one person hadn't killed anybody and got shot seven times in the back and the other guy had murdered two people and was walking right by the police. I mean, the side-by-side image is like the only thing you need to see. Yeah. The tough thing for me, the shocking thing for me, with a lot of that imagery that you're talking about. And this is, I mean, thankfully this is a podcast so we don't have to stick to sports the way you might uh, on a broadcast, like a regular terrestrial radio. But like I watched a really long video of the encounter that that kid had with the black lives matter protesters, like a really uh-huh. long video, a bunch of like compiled cell phone video from different angles and stuff. And the fact of the matter is that kid showed up looking for trouble. He showed up, from across state lines, he borrowed a gun, and he showed up as a 17-year-old, not to help, not to defend his own property or defend his own neighborhood. He showed up looking for a fight. And then when he got a fight, he ended up shooting people to defend himself, if you want to call it defend yourself. I don't know if you can call it defend yourself when you show up in someone else's neighborhood with a weapon looking for a fight, but the reaction that people have on social media is so deeply colored by their preconceived notions of white or black, a guy with a previous record versus a young kid, someone who attaches themselves to one political party versus someone who we don't know their political affiliations. It is insane, the debate that has happened on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and people defending the actions of someone who showed up looking for conflict with a very dangerous, deadly weapon, and then remove the lives of two human beings, and the immediate reaction is, let's find out how he was justified in doing that. We don't do that for everyone in this community, everyone in the United States. That's kind of the whole point. That's why these players were protesting. So if you still are confused as to why these millionaire, you know, whatever you want to say, privileged athletes are protesting, that is the answer. Because if someone who looks like that kid shows up looking for a fight and kills two people— the public's reaction or a lot of the public's reaction is to try and justify his behavior. If someone who looks like a lot of these NBA players shows up and does the same thing, the reaction is not, how was he justified? The action is, what are his priors? What's his previous record? And look, we've found out some things about Jacob Blake that people are having a hard time because they're like, well, he wasn't a good guy. That's not the point. That's not what this is about. Yeah. I'm picturing a black kid with an AK-47 Pointed in. Keep in mind, the police were going the opposite way of the way that that kid was walking because there was people shouting that somebody had been hurt. So they were already alerted that they were going to go see who got hurt and who hurt the person. And I'm just imagining a black guy walking the opposite way of where the police are going to go because they know people got hurt, holding a gun up in the air and them not like tackling them, shooting them, doing whatever. Just him being able to just peacefully walk by was just insane. It was only because of the color of his skin. He's walking toward the police cars with hands in the air 
being like, okay, come get me. He has to walk up to a police car to get arrested. He has to, <laughs> he literally has to turn himself in at the scene of the crime while he's armed with the murder weapon in order for them to, and look, I get it. There are good cops out there who may not have reacted in that situation the same way that the cops who were on scene did, but the optics of what everyone saw and what NBA players saw that caused them to react the way they did was that the black man going to his car got shot in the back. The white kid who had already killed people walking towards the cops, they were ignoring him because they didn't perceive him as a threat. That's bananas, you know? It, and, and that's that's why these players jumped out and did what they wanted to do or did what they felt like they had to do. And the LeBron perspective of, hey, we got to have a plan. What is the plan now? I appreciate that. But also, LeBron, he wasn't the one who started this. That's important to point out. This was all Milwaukee. Everybody was shocked. They were not on the same page about this. They hadn't talked about this. I don't know if anything would have been protested if it wasn't for Milwaukee. Now, obviously, that's the state where one of the incidents happened. But it is very important to point out that it took the courage because I think that I, I really think they weren't sure that they were going to do it until right before tip-off. They didn't come out for warm-ups, and then once it got closer and closer to game time, George Hill and another guy came out with their statement, but they really are the ones that deserve the credit for the whole domino effect across all the sports, across all the teams in the NBA. It is very important to remember that the Bucks were the ones that did this because it wasn't like they had all game-planned for everybody to protest prior to them doing it. I feel like that's important, Zone. I want to get your perspective on it because – when we are just fans, right, or even media observing these sports, we think of like, all right, this is going to go how the major voices in the sport say it's going to go, how LeBron and Chris Paul and those kind of guys, James Harden, are going to say it's going to go, the all-stars, the most talented players, the people that are constantly looked up to. Well, as far as we know, those weren't the guys who were behind this, and it took some Sort of, you know, lesser known voices, and in a lot of cases, younger players, the Jalen Browns of the world, guys who are not by any means like ultimate leaders in the NBA player structure. And I, I try and apply this to the NFL, and I'm like, well, who are those people in the NFL? Like, at one point, we had it felt like Ray Lewis was very much like the mouthpiece of the NFL, and then Peyton Manning was very much the mouthpiece of the NFL. I don't know if we're going to get something like this, hopefully not moving forward with the NFL. Hopefully we don't have any more tragedies like this, but sometimes it's these younger voices that are emerging. And so like as a guy who's probably been in both of those roles, right? The spokesperson, the guy who's a veteran and who's the well-respected you know, mind in the locker room. And also the young fellow who's got opinions and maybe aren't quite as heard. How interesting is that dynamic? Um, it's very interesting. And I think people, this is what people get, I think, get confused with leadership. Oftentimes we ascribe leadership to the person that is making the most on the team. And that is not true for sure. Not in an NFL locker room with the guys that are most, most respected or have the most influence as far as what we should be doing as an organization when we're dealing with football or when social justice issues come up, like when we were talking about kneeling. When we had ours, the loudest voice in the room wasn't the highest paid voice. It was guys that you were considered, you know, blue collar, glue guy type players that had the respect of the locker room that were able to be heard. Um, I think about uh, Mike Tobert was being one of those voices that were really loud during a time in, in 2017. And I think when you're dealing with issues like this, 
LeBron, Chris Paul, all they yes, they have influence, but I think this is such an individual thing as well where it doesn't really matter. Basketball doesn't validate your opinion when we're talking about your experience when you grew up and had to face racism, pol- police brutality. I mean, Sterling Brown, he actually experienced it a few years ago. And so that, I think that he gave even the Milwaukee Bucks even more of a connection to what actually happened in their state. And so it's not always the most paid. It's normally guys that guys respect. And sometimes it's the most paid, but sometimes it's not. And, you know, guys look for people that are genuine that are honest and that are consistent. And that's who normally has the most respect in our, and guys are willing to follow regardless of how much money you, you make. I think just from an outside view, most people say, oh, he got paid the most, he's the leader. That's not, that's not how it works, at least in the NFL locker room. There are probably people listening to this, and there, I know there are people everywhere who think that it doesn't affect everybody, right? It they, does, yeah. I was taken aback by Jamal Murray. Did you guys see Jamal? No one's watching the Jazz Nuggets except for us folks out here in the West. But <laughs> No, that you, series is bananas. I've been watching yeah. that. But did you see Jamal Murray's post-game interview after he hung a 50-burger and yeah. brought them from 20 back to beat the Jazz and force Yeah, he could barely do the interview. Right. He could barely do the interview. They were at NASA. He had shoes with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor custom-painted on his shoes, and he was asked about his shoes. And he could hardly keep it together emotionally. That's a kid from Canada. That's not a kid who was raised in some, you know, traditional environment that you think this stuff is right. This is not like an inner city New York kid or a kid from the wrong side in Chicago. That's a guy who was raised in Ontario, Canada. And he was just like, it's a problem everywhere, man. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. He's black. I mean, you know, I think he lived his first seven years in Africa and then they moved to Canada. And and yeah, he was raised in Canada. But yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, all over the globe, black is black. But that's the exact point, right? Is that we feel like because sometimes you as the person who hasn't come from that environment or seen this kind of stuff, this mistreatment and police brutality and stuff, you see somebody like that and you say, oh, kids from a suburb in Canada and now he's in the NBA, and he's lived a privileged life probably just like I have. But he's like, I'm here to inform you that that is not the case. And and that's somebody who, by the way, these NBA players and a lot of NFL players, once they get to adulthood and they make this money, a lot of them do have it better than the average person does from the professional perspective, from the financial perspective, but it doesn't make you immune to these issues. It doesn't make – and it's like – I'm still – I'm ashamed to admit that I'm still learning this, right? Because yeah. I wouldn't have thought that the kid from Canada had had those kind of experiences. I wouldn't have just – I just – that is not a mental picture in my mind until I saw how emotional he got. So it's important for us to pay attention to this stuff, and I think people finally are. Yeah, I mean, it's huge, just like you said. I mean, I, oh, Jerry Hughes was sharing a story, and that's a defensive end up in Buffalo that I'm very close with. TCU kid, right? Yeah, TCU. Somebody followed him home. I mean, he noticed that somebody was following him home, so he didn't go all the way home. And the person just, I don't know, where this is what's wrong with our country. People like you. And he was talking about because he was he was black. It was just kind of out of nowhere. And so they had like an altercation. But yet it happens. When people don't realize who you are, you're just seen as another black man, black woman, black child in America if they don't have any relationship or association with, you know, some of the privilege that you may have earned through your athletic ability. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's real. And then on top of that, a lot of us come from the neighborhoods that you're talking about, you know, low income, 
or you call it hoods or whatever, communities. And so we know what it's like. It's not like I woke up and living in Paradise Valley with a yeah. pool in my backyard. That's not how I grew up. You know, I had to work and earn and sacrifice to earn this. But it doesn't discredit my, the first, you know, 18 years of my life and things that I had to grow up and overcome and, and experience. And I think that's where people also have a disconnect as well. They feel like we just were boom, birth, boom. Oh, he's just an all-star. He's never had any adversity because he's making, you know, millions of dollars and a lot of times not millions of dollars, but has accumulated this wealth of money that it has shielded us from, from the color of our skin. Yeah, I mean, and uh, another thing I just wanted to point out is, you know, the NBA gave about 20 different things that you could put on the back of your jersey. Yeah. And I, I found this to be ironic. They couldn't put, because I feel like George Floyd, for whatever reason, gets a little bit more attention than Breonna Taylor. But the Breonna Taylor is just as horrific. I mean, not that any of the, not that there's degrees to any of this stuff, yeah. but I feel like that doesn't get as much attention. I found it a little ironic that you can put, say her name on the back of your jersey. That was one of the 20 things that you could put, but you couldn't put Breonna Taylor. So you could put who they're talking about. But you couldn't actually put the name. Anyways, that was just something that I saw where I just, you know, again, I think all this stuff is going to unfold. Yeah, I said that upset some guys as well. Yeah, but I see, but that's where it's cool where the players are taking it into their own hands and they're saying, okay, you won't let me put it on the jersey. Well, guess what? I'll have somebody draw their faces on my shoes. You know what I'm saying? You won't let me put it on the jersey, but I'll do it there. All right, let's move on because I wanted to ask you about this. The NFLPA, J.C. Treader, he wants daily testing throughout the season. Yeah. When I saw this headline, I don't mean to be flipping about it, but my first thought was, uh, why the hell wouldn't you do daily testing? Like, why would this even be a thing? So when you saw this, Zoe, what'd you think? Because it's cost association. Even right now with our current protocols, only the first two weeks were mandated that we had daily testing. And then after that, it went to every other day, as long as there was the threshold was underneath 5%. And so... I think most teams, because of what happened in MLB with some of their outbreaks, have continued to do the daily testing. And this is just another way for him to continue that pressure. Like, hey, Mm -hmm. the only real weapon we have against this thing is testing and understanding where we stand on a daily basis because you can have false positives. And if, let's say, you, you know, depending on when you get that or false negative, depending on when you get that, you can spend two up to two more days around guys and essentially infect other guys even though we got masks and we're not social distancing at some point you're gonna be up in somebody's face because we're playing football and so his thing is hey let's test daily let's understand where we're at and so if anybody gets infected by the virus then we can quarantine them and because the goal is to get through the season not start it but get through it and that's the best way to do it is to be informed on a day-to-day basis even though it hasn't really impacted our group thus far but once we start traveling once, you know, kids start going to school, wives maybe go to work or out. It's just there's additional, I think, touch points, especially as the season goes on. You are going to have some guys to say, hey, I'm going to go out to dinner with my wife tonight. And even though it may be done safely, they may social distance, you are still increasing the risk of possibly getting COVID. Yeah, I think uh, we're about to embark on We already saw the first college football game of the season, right, over the weekend. A little matchup between Central Arkansas and Austin P that we talked about. you're seeing positive tests coming back you're seeing practices postponed canceled things like that we're about to embark on opening weekend of college football and there are no college football teams out there that are doing daily testing the maximum i have seen from any college football organizations is that it's three times a week and we don't know about how reliable the tests are we don't know about how many times they're going to be able to get tests back 
you know, you, you take a test on Thursday. Do you get the results back Saturday morning before you actually square off with the other team? We still don't know any of those things. So what the NFL is doing or should be doing, because they have the money to spend, virtually unlimited budgets, is just pay the extra $400,000 or however much it's going to be to get daily testing done so you can avoid the inevitable cancellations that college football is facing. Like the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, congratulations on being able to push forward and try and play a season. In week four, you're going to be sitting out, University of Alabama. That's just what's going to happen because you can't control this environment. The NFL can't. Yeah, I was actually, you brought me to my next point, which I was just going to say, hey, fellas, college football, it's back. How did that feel? Now, this started, I watched, uh, I'm not sure, Zoe, I don't know how much of a football nut you are in terms of watching everything, but I was just feeding for football so bad. I watched Deion Sanders High School and his son, who plays quarterback, they played on Friday, I believe. And then, as you mentioned, OC, the college game on Saturday. And I'm just looking at this. I'm on this site where it's just it's like a generic college football site. So rather than take the games that have been canceled off, they show every single one that's being played, and then they show the ones that are not going to be played. So, for instance, it says uh, UC Davis just up the road. UC Davis, Nevada, postponed. And then a little bit further down, (laughs) South Alabama and Southern Miss, Thursday at 6 p.m. And then it says Ohio State and Illinois postponed. Right below that, Central AR and UAB Thursday at 5 p.m. So anyways, it just shows you how many games are being postponed. But what did you guys make of college football being back? I, I, I Call me crazy, it looked normal. I don't know if it's going to go down like it's going to be normal, but it looked normal to me. Of course it's going to look normal. I mean, what would you change for not to look normal? I mean, the only thing that the issue is is this virus and spreading the virus. But other than that, coaches are still coaching the same, still implementing the same type of plays and structures. And so there isn't going to be any difference. The difference is going to be that the aftermath or the effect if this virus, as it has already on a couple of campuses, starts to spread. And then you start to window down your talent pool. And and even in that case, unless you have probably like a smaller school, you're not going to see a significant difference. But that's where the real impact comes, are the spikes after a game or, or even leading up to a game and whether or not you have your stars out there playing or not. Zachariah, you're absolutely right. That did look like a week one sloppy-ass college football game <laughs> between two teams that are under-talented because I, I got optimistic. First play of the game was like a, a 50-yard yeah, yeah. goes to the crib for a score, and I was just like, okay, we might actually get something. And then it was – 3.7 quarters of just boring, sloppy, bad football, and then they finally turned it up in the last couple of minutes. So I was like, yeah, that's a week one game, all right. College football is back. It, it's not all the big brands yet, so we're going to have to settle for Eastern Kentucky and Marshall this weekend. But at the end of the day, you're going to get some product of football, and that's really all America needs right now. Yeah, I just it's going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds like is it just because then i mean you've already seen the big 10 getting and i just saw that trump talked to the big 10 about starting their season they're already getting cold feet about like oh what did we do here did we make a mistake because they're seeing all the other conferences and it seems like it's going off without a hitch now again we haven't started anything yet so we'll see what actually happens when it starts but i can feel it from here i can feel ohio state being like uh, did we mess up by canceling the season or postponing the season? Dude, you're familiar with FOMO, right? Yeah, <laughs> fear of missing out. The fear of missing out, that's like the worst 
case of FOMO across <laughs> however many states, what, like the whole Pac-12 and the whole Big yeah. Ten, that's like yeah. 15 states, are just experiencing collective FOMO right now. And who knows how many alumni all over the country, because we're going to watch, at some point, we're going to watch like a conference SEC football game. And yeah. my reaction to that is going to be like, damn it, I should be watching Utah versus USC right now. But yeah. I got to keep reminding myself that two weeks after we get that LSU Alabama game, we're going to get an announcement from the SEC that says, 61 positive tests on LSU's roster mean that we can't play for the next couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. And then they'll have the opposite of fear of missing out. They'll be like, thank God we didn't do that. How terrible is that? If you're in the Pac-12 and you're in the Big Ten right now, you have to, on the low, be rooting for failure for the rest of college football. You have to be hoping that they have to shut it down so you're not the odd one out. And I can't believe you haven't mentioned the fact that apparently Donald Trump Again, tough day for the stick-to-sports crowd. Doesn't want politics and sports to mix. Donald Trump has committed. He said that he's going to commit resources to helping the Big Ten get started up again. That's why everyone's freaking out. That's not going to happen. He's just trying to get some political, uh, you know, some political clout in like a swing state. I don't know Iowa because they want their football back. And he's like, I'm going to do what I can to help you. Notice he did not even bother to mention the Pac-12 because he's not winning anything except Utah. The Pac-12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's worried about them swing states right yeah yeah all right gentlemen well we'll see what uh we'll see what unfolds lorenzo alexander sean o'connell i'm zachariah until next time two z's and oc holla later <laughs> all right gentlemen all right man Talk to you next week yeah yep